Welcome to the fourth episode of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today's episode looks at Joan Crawford's Torch Song from 1953. You can watch it online at dailymotion.com. Joan plays Jenny Stewart, a Broadway star elbows deep in a new production that's riddled with problems. She's surrounded by men who fail to meet her high standards. Michael Wilding plays Ty Graham, a blind pianist who criticizes her singing. Torch Song should carry the subtitle, How to Be Boss at Middle Age. Joan shows women how to wear their age and experience with authority. She's not trying to look 25 here. She looks like a grown woman, ripe as summer fruit in the prime of her life. As much as I prefer black and white, Joan in Technicolor is transcendent. Torch Song delivers the goods right away without making us wait. Joan was nervous about shooting the opening dance number, so they did it on the first day to get it out of the way. The film opens with Joan Crawford performing a dance number in a leotard and wraparound skirt that's cut open in the front so that nothing obscures her moneymakers, gams that go on for days so sculpted they look marble-hewn. She's such a seasoned performer. In dance rehearsal with her partner played by the film's director, Charles Walters, she rolls her eyes at one point to signify that the routine falls beneath her potential skill set. She's burdened with an amateur. Compare Joan dancing in Torch Song to when she was in Dancing Ladies 20 years earlier in 1933. In Robert C. Leonard's Depression-era musical, Joan plays Janie Barlow, a burlesque dancer who strives for Broadway. When she auditions for Clark Gable, she does a number that consists of a few tap steps and lots of kicks. Strangely, the same number appears in the stage production rehearsal once she's cast in the lead. It isn't a very good routine. You can almost see her thinking about what to do with her feet next as she recalls the choreography. I adore Dancing Lady, but it doesn't really showcase Joan as a great dancer. In Torch Song, by contrast, she's sure-footed with the lightest of steps. She is poise and grace personified. Sometimes it seems like she's airborne. Joan looks the absolute business as Jenny Stewart. She's an unbelievable 47 years old with eyes gleaming as bright as twin moons with ocean blue centers, and she's as slender as a tulip stalk. Joan illustrates the benefits of her discipline regimen to full effect. When you work your ass off to get to the top, it affords you the ability to say things like, tell him to smile, or we'll get another boy. What matters is how her body appears on stage, and if a man ruins the line of her outstretched leg, he's a liability. Men quake in their boots around Jenny, and rightly so. She's exacting, with high standards for herself and everyone else, where second rate just isn't good enough. Her opinion is what matters, not what they think. Jenny must carry the show on her back as a great star essentially martyrs herself to the stage. She has jettisoned all pretense of currying male favor or approval. They need to appeal to her. She's in charge. After she storms out of rehearsal, she complains in the car to a suit that everything stinks about the show except for herself. Jenny issues withering pronouncements about him. Your idea of art's the fruit in a slot machine, she says. She can toss off judgments because she has the taste of distinction. Men are just crass pencil pushers or penny pinchers. She directs the driver to take the ineffectual man home, which she just so happens to call derisively any dark bar. Every man in her life is a grave disappointment. 
Back in her flat, she changes into a dressing gown that's a pure cadmium yellow. It's a hue as bright as the sun. It calls to mind ambition, hard work, and intense focus, symbolizing memory and concentration. It seems like the perfect garment for her to wear to run lines with her secretary, Anne, played by Mady Norman. The dressing gown isn't designed for a woman who shares her bed with a man. It's about comfort rather than seduction. Done up to her neck, down to her ankles and wrists, she looks warm and snug. When she settles in, her bedside console compares with the bridge of the Enterprise. A panel with a dozen buttons lies within easy reach. Button switches control the lights, the radio, the uh, recorded time, and various buzzers sound, which makes you wonder who they're meant for on the receiving end. She has a cup stuffed with freshly sharpened pencils, cigarettes and a lighter, a telephone, envelopes, notepad, books. Everything she needs rests at her fingertips. One of the book spines reads, The Proud Land, which could easily describe Crawford's territory inside or out of the bedroom. She's entirely self-contained. We know that despite how talented and self-reliant Jenny Stewart may be, when she says to Anne that she doesn't need anyone, viewers know she'll have to eat those words. In another rehearsal scene, Joan wears a burnt orange ombre circle skirt that boasts so much swish and swagger that she's as commanding as if she were locked and loaded with side holsters like she wore in Johnny Guitar made the following year. Watching Joan try to do nothing on a Sunday leaves me white-knuckled. She can't do it. She swings her legs around aimlessly, smokes too much, fools around with the overhead lamp and the bedside console buttons. She corrects the clock on the wall, which is running a few minutes fast, just like Jenny Stewart. When your customary setting veers towards overdrive, there's no comfort zone in idling. So to fill the quiet, she orders up a party with an all-male guest list. Bored and listless in a plaid circle skirt, with a spray of flowers over the neckline. It calls to mind a similar floral neckline she wore next to Brian Ahern in I Live My Life from 1935. Joan, however, turns petulant when the one man she wanted in her flat hasn't appeared. A man at the party calls her the distilled essence of effectiveness, as though it were an insult. Torch Song expects us to find fault with Jenny's perfectionism, but instead, for me, Joan has earned the right to set the bar as high as she likes. Why should viewers penalize her for invoking the privileges of stardom? She works hard to give her audience exactly what they want and expect. Jenny wants pianist Ty Graham. He's impassive and implacable, offering brutal criticism of her vocal arrangements as unorthodox, arbitrary, and abrupt. When Jenny fires into an outraged protest, he becomes even colder and more reserved. He won't take her bait. Instead of argue or accept confrontation, his ploy seems to be resort to taking his guide dog, a boxer named Duchess, and head for the door. Perhaps the only thing worse than a bad review to Jenny is being ignored. When he shows up at her flat, she examines him close up as she fixes his drinks. Joan butches out in a blue button-down shirt and slim black trousers. He chides her, you expect to rock the world back on its heels. Joan snarls, I've rocked it a few times, buster. She looks so strong and potent, it's a miracle she didn't tear his head off praying mantis style. Joan lets loose an angry outburst that defies gender. 
Later, when he leaves, her facade cracks just a little bit and a big tear splashes on her silk shantung blouse and stains it. For a woman so impeccably groomed, the tear stain looks as violent as a stab wound. I can't make up my mind about Wilding. On one hand, his stiff upper lip routine seems credible. On the other, he doesn't seem to crumble or soften enough when Joan learns how he really feels about her. Brave face or cold fish, I can't be sure. Duchess, the dog, emotes more than he does. My favorite scene in the picture is when Joan goes to visit her mother. It's a quiet scene that shows another side to the star. Marjorie Rambeau, as Jenny's mother, grounds the Broadway queen with a simple glass of beer. Rambeau has the deep graveled voice of a mountain of unfiltered cigarettes and stiff belts of whiskey. She may have had her hand out in each previous scene, but now, when her daughter makes an uncharacteristic late-night drop-in, we see that she's a curator of her mother's career. Jenny's biggest fan, who used to quote her press by heart. She archived Jenny's past with the same duty of care as the Library of Congress. Mrs. Stewart, an experienced tippler, drains her beer in one gulp to close the scene as a reward for doing her level best to solve Jenny's dilemma. Jenny confesses man trouble. He's blind, she says. Mrs. Stewart replies that it's better than the hothouse clothes horse type her daughter normally dates. She adds that Jenny's father was almost bald when they met, and she says, quote, we all carry some infirmity with us. When Jenny confides that the man had referred to as a gypsy Madonna, Mama's instant recall directs Jenny to pull out the first of her 10-volume clipping collection. Mother Stewart knows what she's looking for, a review from one number Jenny did in an early production that the reviewer raved about, referring to Jenny as a gypsy Madonna. You guessed it, written by none other than Michael Wilding's Ty Graham. What could be a happier ending in a woman's picture than a man who will forever remember you as young, just like Claude Rains did for Betty Davis and Mr. Skeffington? In her mother's place, she's wearing a burnt sienna wool jersey dress with a flared skirt that adds an earthy quality to the scene for her drinking beer and recalling the past. She looks subdued on her mother's sofa, backed with pristine anti-massacres, and she relaxes her iron-forged spine into the cushions. She's not playing the Broadway star for her mother. Jenny departs from her characteristic self-command and doubts. I wonder what he saw in me. I wasn't that good then. Joan listens to a record of her younger self and sings along to the song tenderly in her own voice, not dubbed as usual in the rest of the picture by India Adams. Her necklace for the scene, a thick gold collar with dangling brown stones, further underscores a rustic bohemian style. Viewers get a sense of what we trade in for polish and command when we become strange to our younger self with age. Joan plays it wistful and slightly confused rather than maudlin or self-pitying. Sometimes we catch a glimpse of what Joan may have been like in real life, such as when she's packing for the trip to open the show in Philadelphia. She's organized with military precision, asking for the shoes that match each outfit. When her younger sister Martha, played by Dorothy Patrick, tries to nab a swing coat, Joan balks and demands it back, but then gives it to her anyway with a compliment about how nice it looks on her. Joan was tirelessly generous, even with the family members who always had their hand out. 
Torch Song, however, jumps the rails with the Two-Faced Woman routine, originally written for Sid Charisse in The Bandwagon, also from 1953. It becomes a cringeworthy blackface routine. I can only hope she meant it in the spirit of showcasing how versatile her glamour could be. The song and the routine certainly hasn't aged well. Overall, Torch Song shows a woman struggling to maintain high standards and remain relevant on the cusp of 50. When critics and studio executives dismissed her as washed up, she proved them wrong. When Benny Thau rang Joan in 1953 to invite her back to MGM to do the picture, she didn't tell him to get stuffed. She kept her counsel and read the script. Politely, ever so politely, she refers to Benny as one of the gentlemen in the studio who thought she was washed up 10 years ago. After 18 years on the lot, she left MGM in 1943. She bought out her contract, furious that she wasn't getting any good scripts. Let's face it, Benny was grooming his mistress, Greer Garson, for the plum prestige roles like Blossoms in the Dust and Madame Curie. Joan loathed Benny, but she wasn't foolish enough to let a grudge keep her from a juicy script. Remember, she told Louis B. Mayer that she would play Wally Beery's grandmother if it was a good part. Joan was paid $125,000 for Torch Song in 83 separate installments to lessen the tax burden. On the first day of shooting, Joan gave everyone in the cast and crew gifts, something she normally did at the end of a picture. She gave the director, Charles Walters, a potted rubber tree. Hanging off the tree were plastic-wrapped lamb chops, Joan thought he was too thin, a cashmere sweater, vitamin pills, and a stopwatch, among other things. I'll leave you with an excerpt from A Portrait of Joan, the autobiography of Joan Crawford. Then, in March 1953, Benny Thau, one of the gentlemen at MGM who had thought me all washed up 10 years ago, sent me a script strictly undercover. When I got as far as page 45, I picked up the phone and said, when do we start? I wanted to do Torch Song. I wanted to go back to MGM more than anything in the world. Also, I'd seen Chuck Walter's Delightful Lily, and if I were to achieve Torch Song, I felt he was the director for me. He was the director. There was a dressing room filled with flowers. Everyone came on set to welcome me, from Dory Sherry to the prop men and waitresses from the commissary. There was a giant-sized market basket of chocolates from Clark Gable, a basket of roses from Fred Astaire, a bunch of violets from one of the grips, dozens and dozens of orchids, one of the most exciting days of my life. Chuck Walters took me by the hand, let me out onto the stage, and we started the first dance number, Follow Me. Chuck originally was a dance director, became a top choreographer, and he danced this number with me, I'm sure to put me at ease. His is a touch, a delicacy I've never seen in anyone else. To me, this picture meant more than just a triumphant homecoming. Torch Song was my first Technicolor picture, my first dancing picture in 11 years, and a new approach to movie making widescreen. There were moments when I thought I'd bitten off more than I could chew. You can't stay away from dancing as long as that and get back in training without muscle-racking work. While we were rehearsing the big dance number, Two-Faced Woman, I asked Willie Haynes to come to the set and tell me the truth. How was I doing? He watched for a while, then picked up a paper and started to read. My heart sank. That night, with diffidence, I phoned Willie. Cranberry, he said, you amaze me. I breathed again. God must have his hand on my shoulder, Willie. 
I don't know about the shoulder, Cranberry, but only God could get your legs up that high. Luckily, dancing is like swimming. You never forget, but I was muscle-bound that first week. And there was makeup to devise for Technicolor and for the glamorous high yellow number, 15 costumes to fit, and photographs constantly being taken without makeup by Collier's skillful Sanford Roth. And we had a shooting schedule of 24 days, including production numbers. We made it. There is an amazing discipline you acquire when you're raised in this business that you have to acquire, the exact measure of all the details. There are no pauses. Between scenes are conferences with director and assistant director, conferences with producers and writers, discussion with wardrobe people, the constant exigencies of grooming, a whole fresh makeup at noon. How can you face a camera close-up late in the afternoon with makeup from 6 a.m.? Flats are my footwear until I'm ready to go into a scene, then high heels, not from wardrobe either, always my own, with the crossed ankle straps and open heels and toes that mold to my foot. Jerry Wald had an absolute fetish about those ankle straps, and for his sake, I had them made of plastic, which fails to photograph. What Jerry doesn't know is that I've broken ankles three different times. I've sprained them three times, and I need those straps for support. In a pump, there's no security for your ankles. Most comfortable of all is to be surrounded on the set by people who are not only familiar co-workers, but also friends. My fellow co-workers have been with me for years. They are as keyed up as I am and as critical as any director. They don't yes me. Costumer Elva Martin, who's been with me 16 years, will walk into a scene just between rehearsal and take, ostensibly to fix my collar and straighten my jacket, but as she does so, she'll whisper, you were so tense, darling, you were slouching a little. That's not like you, Joan. When the costumers presented me last year with their handsome Golden Fig Leaf Award for having worn costumes glamorously throughout the years, I insisted Elva share the spotlight. She'd earn the right. Elva, Eddie Allen, The Makeup Man, Nora Brown, Body Makeup, Peggy Shannon, Hairdresser, and Sylvia Lamar, my stand-in and double for 19 years, have all given far and above the call of duty. So has brilliant cameraman Charles Lang, who worked with me first in Sudden Fear. You're married to everyone on the set for the duration of a picture. These skilled people know what I need, what I want, and every requirement of the director. They're the best at their jobs in the industry. I love having them with me. I also love the, the stream of visitors who come and go. My sets have always been closed except for a difficult scene, such as the one with the sound scriber in sudden fear or when a director had felt visitors were distracting to him. Friends dropping by give me confidence and incentive. Talent can't grow without this. At MGM, while our sets were being lighted, Clark and I would go over to visit Spencer Tracy's set to watch him work. He'd visit us. So would Bob Taylor, Bob Young, and Bob Montgomery. We'd all visit back and forth. This interest we had in each other's performance created an invigorating atmosphere. You work twice as hard, give twice as much, when your audience includes great prose. On Torch Song, I was under tremendous pressure because of the dancing. Going home at night was a mistake. At home, I'd find myself checking cooking supplies, scouring stainless steel, romping in the nursery with Kathy and Cindy, listening to their first grade problems, coping with household crises until I was so tense I couldn't sleep. I was afraid my tenseness would communicate itself to the children. 
This is something every working mother and father has to face, the times of business tension we don't want to impose on our families. My children always knew that in any crisis, I'd leave the studio for them at once. But after the first few days of Torch Song, I knew I was bringing my worries home. Better to leave the twins to their busy days at school, their competent nurse at home, and for me to stay right at the studio in my dressing room, except, of course, for weekends. I talked with them with all four children every night, and our talks were calm and loving as they should be, not a distraught mother rushing in and out and disturbing the very order she has established. This way, when we'd stop shooting at six, I could see the rushes, go back to my dressing room, talk over the next day's scenes with Chuck Walters and the cast. We'd eat peanut butter and crackers, have a drink, and talk. This is a pattern I've followed ever since when making a picture. After my cohorts leave, I'm locked in that dressing room at night with my script, getting ready for the next day, evaluating all that we've discussed. Sometimes I go over the empty set and walk it, rehearsing. One of the most wondrous places in the world is the night studio, quiet, shadowed, the vast equipment standing idle, the city of a million fantasies and as many combined talents ready to spring into being at daybreak. Try to sleep. I'm awakened each morning at 5.30 by the arrival of Elva, Nora, Peggy, and Eddie. At the start of the picture, I order breakfast for all of us for the duration. Scrambled eggs, crisp bacon, sausage, coffee cake stuffed with apples. While I eat, my hair's being done. We're due on the set at 9, but my first requisite is peace of mind, and it doesn't include hurry at the beginning of the day. Once you are adjusted, then you can be as upset in character as need be. The girls and Eddie share my moods, and they all know the script as well as I do. They know what I'm about to face an arduous scene. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time for episode five when I talk about William Wyler's The Good Fairy with Margaret Sullivan from 1935. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific I got the sun to tend